Welcome to Climate Optimus. I'm Jason Lewis. And I'm Todd Deshida. Thanks for tuning in. As we begin the new year, we're hoping to grow our listener base. So if you want to help us out, take a moment to think of people you know that might like this podcast and who wouldn't <laughs> and you know have them subscribe on their platform of choice thanks Todd that was a great uh, was a great promo so turning to today's topic I think everybody recognizes that you know first and foremost we need to be focused on cutting our fossil fuel emissions and, and getting them to zero as quickly as we can that being said natural systems also have an important role to play in you know helping us get to that you know, having of emissions we need to do by 2030, as well as achieving net zero by 2050. So today we'll be exploring the potential of the Earth's land to store carbon and what measures are needed to help maximize that its long-term potential. So before today, uh, Todd, how much did you know about uh, land-based carbon sinks? Not much. I thought maybe they were like a carbon, like an actual carbon sink, like a carbon fiber sink that you would like wash your dishes in. Wow. No, I, 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 I knew that I knew that <laughs> I knew the concept, but I didn't know that much about the numbers. So I, I knew that, you know, there's carbon that kinda gets stored in the ground or gets stored in plants and things like that, but I wasn't much more versed than that, to be honest. Indeed. I and as usual, going into some of these topics, I think it's gonna be, you know, pretty simple and, and it ends up being really complex. But, you know, we're we're gonna do our best at simplifying it and, you know, if we do a poor job yeah, you don't have to recommend this podcast to your friends. So before we dig into today's topic, I want to cover this week's reason for hope. So as as folks know well, the federal government has not yet been successful in passing uh, sweeping climate legislation, but I think it was important to call out all the action that took place this last year at at a state level. And Inside Climate News had a great article where they talked about it. I, I didn't realize that there were actually five states uh, that passed laws in 2021 with, you know, climate targets associated with being, you know, net zero overall or having their electricity sector be net zero by by 2050 or sooner. Really a huge success given kind of the slow progress at, at the federal level. And, and, you know, at least for me, gives me some gives me some real hope that, you know, we've got more than one option to get to where we need to be. Yeah, definitely. So giving some credit to the states that, that passed these laws. Oregon passed a law, you know, requiring that their two largest utilities get to net zero by 2040. And, you know, for folks who don't know Oregon, the reality is the balance of the utilities in the state are largely purchasing hydropower already, so pretty close to net zero. So that's an exciting development. Uh, both Massachusetts and Rhode Island passed uh, net zero targets. I guess Rhode Island's is apparently a little light on details. There's some stuff to still be fleshed out there, but uh, but again, great development. And then Illinois finally got it done as well, uh, passed hmm. a, a net zero by 2050. And and the other cool piece I read about the law is that there's a real emphasis on equity. You know, closing plants near you know disadvantaged communities. You know, emphasis on hiring people of color in terms of building out this new energy infrastructure. So, yeah, kudos to, to Illinois. Yeah, it's awesome. And then last and certainly not least, North Carolina passed a law requiring that their electricity sector be net zero by 2050 with a 70% reduction by, by 2030. 
and exciting because it's the first, you know, Southern state to have, yeah. have a law that focuses on, on climate action at that level. That's awesome. Yeah. Super exciting. Especially given you got the home of Duke energy there, you know, and the largest utility in the country and certainly has huge, you know, coal and, and natural gas holdings. So, yeah. Kind of just evidence that there's support out there and, and people want to do this, you know, so there's really no reason that federal, you know, legislation shouldn't pass. Yeah. I mean, this was all in 2021, five more states. So that's rad. Exciting stuff. Yeah. So our guest today to help educate us on natural systems and their power to store carbon is Kathy McDonald. Kathy is the North American Natural Climate Solutions Director for the Nature Conservancy, where she works with colleagues, elected officials, organizations to mitigate climate change through natural and working land policies. Prior to her current role, Kathy was the Nature Conservancy's Oregon Director of External Affairs and Director of Conservation Programs, where, among other things, she led the organization's climate policy work in the state. She served on numerous local, state, and regional boards and committees, and is currently the chair of the Oregon Global Warming Commission. She's done a lot of stuff. Impressive resume, for sure, and an authority on the topic. So, yeah, excited to have her on. Kathy, welcome to Climate Optimus. Thanks. It's great to be here. So I'll we'll start you off with a question we start all our guests, which is when you think about efforts to address climate change, you know, what, what makes you hopeful? So really two things, Jason. Um, first, I, it's just more and more people are recognizing the urgency with which we need to act to address and avoid the worst impacts of climate change. So, you know, governments, land managers, corporations, civil society, and then second, technologies that are going to help us get there are becoming cost effective and cost competitive with fossil fuel technologies that and and so it's going to make business sense for us to change the way we operate. Yeah, it's exciting to see the momentum that's building and, you know, fingers crossed that that continues to accelerate and and take us on the trajectory that we need to be when it comes to to reducing emissions. It is exciting. So our topic today is obviously, you know, land-based carbon sinks, and not all folks may be sort of aware of what land-based carbon sinks are. So I thought I'd start you off with a basic question of, you know, what are they? And and maybe onto that, you know, why are they important? You bet. You may recall from your early biology classes that plants convert carbon dioxide and water into the cellulose that make up the, the plant material. And that uh, allows us to draw carbon dioxide out of the air and store it. Uh, And that gets stored in the plant materials, but also gets transferred into soils and turned into uh, soil-based carbon stores. So the land sink is really both the combination of soils and plant materials that uh, draw carbon dioxide out of the air and store it over time. So it sounds like it really is sort of twofold. It's not just the maybe the obvious of the, the foliage of the plant, but also the, the soils that it interacts with. Absolutely. So thinking about you know, carbon sinks and their potential benefit, how, how do we go about ensuring that we're delivering you know, what we say we are? In other words, I can imagine it's hard to, to sometimes measure these sort of things. Um, how do we validate you know, these carbon sinks are delivering their, their benefits? You're, you're correct. It is more challenging to measure 
carbon stored and taken out of the atmosphere uh, through plants and into the soils than it is to, to measure emissions at a smokestack. It's, it's more complicated. The land sector can be both a source and a sink of emissions. And so, the, but there are some great methods that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has come up with for measuring, monitoring, and reporting the carbon that's stored in natural and working lands. Uh, the EPA uses and follows that methodology for assessing our uh, emissions uh, and sequestration in the land sector in the U.S., and then states adopt those practices when they have set goals for sequestration. So it's um, there are methodologies, and the information's improving all the time in terms of the land sector sequestration. So it sounds like there's some well-accepted standards out there and methodology that enables, you know, uh, the Nature Conservancy and others to to be able to validate that, you know, the carbon sink is storing, you know, X amount of carbon and perhaps in, in turn what additional potential there is for that sink to store. Absolutely. So I know, you know, when we talk about, talk about whether forests or grasslands and especially in light of, you know, seeing forest fires in the West, there's this obviously next question of like, how do we ensure carbon sinks remain in place, you know, for the long haul? So one of the things that's really important to think about when thinking about the land sector and carbon sinks in the land sector is climate adaptation and climate mitigation at the same time. And so we aren't trying to maximize the amount of carbon everywhere on the landscape. What we're trying to do is create the most resilient and robust sink we can have. And in some places, that's going to mean reducing carbon in the short run, but hopefully protecting more carbon in the long run. So in some of our fire-prone forests, uh, because of fire suppression and exclusion, it's really important that you know we think about managing those systems back to a point where the fuel loads and distribution are not contributing to bigger and bigger fires. And so, uh, you know, that's a, that's the side of it where we have to think about uh, climate adaptation and climate resilience. Um, and then uh, in other places where uh, our carbon is a little more secure and the ecosystem can be managed to increase carbon without increasing risks of things like wildfire, then we can look at those places to, to implement practices that help us build more carbon. Uh, on the landscape. And so, you know, I think the forest is an easy one for people to visualize. And it sounds like it's essential to sort of strike that balance, understanding kind of the realities of what we're facing in the forest with climate change and, and then developing a, you know, developing management practices that ensure we store, you know, as much carbon as we can, given, you know, the, the climate impacts that are facing those forests. What are some of those ecosystems where things are perhaps a little more stable and and not as prone to, you know, something like, let's say, wildfire that could release a lot of carbon? Sure. Um, well, any of the systems that store a lot of the carbon in the soil, soil carbon tends to be a little more protected. And so the more we can protect natural grasslands and tidal wetlands, uh, and the, because those systems store most of their carbon in the soil, that's a really important strategy. So avoiding the conversion of native ecosystems that store a lot of carbon in their soils um, 
or like our some of our west side forests that are on the coast where you have a really big both below ground and above ground carbon stores and and less risk from wildfire those are the systems where types where we can really do a lot of good by protecting the carbon that we've got and avoiding conversion which is always kind of number one in the hierarchy of what we should be thinking about in terms of protecting carbon. So given that, you know, we have different types of carbon sinks, different potentials to, you know, sequester and hold carbon, looking kind of more holistically, what potential do, you know, natural carbon sinks offer in terms of, you know, in terms of meeting our carbon reduction goals that we have, you know, both sort of at the 2030 and, and 2050 levels? In 2018, the International Panel on Climate Change produced two reports. The first looked at the steps that we need to take to avoid the worst impacts of climate change and and keep global warming below 1.5 degrees centigrade. And the second uh, report looked specifically at the land sector and looked both at the potential impacts of climate change on emissions from the land sector, uh, but also the role of the land sector in being part of a comprehensive climate strategy. And both concluded that we will not reach our ultimate goals of net zero emissions by 2050 without really paying attention to the land sector. And that's uh, because some of the practices and and sectors are going to be very hard to decarbonize. And so where we have more difficulty decarbonizing a an industry, for example, uh, the land sector can play a role in in offsetting those emissions. Uh, Where we can completely decarbonize a a sector, then everything we get from the land sector is just helping us make more progress faster. So we don't need to wait till 2050 to think about the land sector. The more we can do in the land sector, as in all of the other sectors where we need to reduce emissions, the better. Well, I think it's exciting to think about the potential of land-based carbon sinks, you know, taking advantage of sort of, you know, what mother nature has designed and, you know, has been there for thousands of years and leveraging that um, to be able to hit our climate targets. I'm wondering if it might be helpful for folks to kind of understand maybe what are the sort of the primary types of carbon sinks, if you were to kind of break them into different buckets and, you know, what are sort of the challenges with each of those There are three types of actions that we can take to increase carbon stores. First is to protect the natural systems that we have because they're very good at storing carbon. And then we can look at improving the management of ecosystems that we use to produce food and fiber and managing those in ways that are some people refer to as climate smart. They think about opportunities for increased sequestration. And then the third is to restore habitat, uh, native habitats, where we can increase the sequestration through the restoration of those activities. So those are the types of actions. And really, those can be uh, applied in any kind of ecosystem or working land type. So in our forests that are producing fiber, in our agricultural lands, whether that be row crops or rangelands, And then uh, what's often called blue carbon ecosystems, the tidal wetlands and submerged uh, carbon stocks that are in seagrass beds, for example. So we can can think about how to protect, uh, improve management and restore all of those kinds of ecosystems and improve practices in our agricultural and wood producing uh, forests. 
you know, the visioning folks can probably pretty easily wrap their heads around the idea of, of, you know, preserving a natural habitat. You know, one of the methods you talked about, I'm wondering if you might be able to give an example of what, you know, changing management practices in, let's say a forest or an agriculture might look like. In other words, how do you take those, those lands and kind of move them from where they are today to a place where they're able to sequester more carbon? So the, the practices are specific to the land type. So in agricultural lands, uh, one of the best things you can do is plant cover crops. And that has both benefits for increasing the, the carbon that gets into the soil and is protected there, as well as in providing additional benefits for water quality and things like that. So cover crops is a great example of a type of practice that can be implemented in many of our agricultural lands to increase sequestration. In forests, um, forests are managed in different ways to produce fiber, and there are different ways of managing that to uh, result in increasing carbon stocks over time. And so in some systems, where selective logging is occurring, if the right trees aren't selected, you can actually have a negative impact on the amount of carbon in that forest over time. If you select the right trees, you can have a positive impact on the the amount of carbon that's stored over time. So it's changing how we think about which trees we harvest in, in some forested ecosystems. So those are two good examples of the kinds of things that we can think about doing that will increase carbon over time in our agricultural lands and the and the lands we rely on to produce uh, fiber. So given the, the different types of ecosystems that are out there and, and the three kind of um, focus areas that you talked about, what, you know, what should really be our, you know, our area of focus kind of within the U.S. and, and then what might it look like if we were to sort of look at it kind of globally? Are there you know, certain things we should be prioritizing that have big benefit that maybe aren't, you know, realizing that benefit right now. In the research that the Nature Conservancy has done globally and in the U.S. to evaluate the additional potential in natural and working lands, reforestation, avoided forest conversion, and improved forest management are the three biggest bars and biggest pathways or practices that we can advance. But there are also some really important ones. As I mentioned earlier, cover crops are a really important one in agricultural lands and avoided conversion of native uh, rangelands is another really important practice that we can look at. Uh, Those are very important, but I also like to remind people of and and to have people think about all of the co-benefits that come along with different practices that we can implement. And when you think kind of beyond just the carbon benefits, then it starts bringing in some of the other pathways and practices that can really be important as we think about our future. So coastal ecosystems, uh, many of the actions that will store more carbon are also going to really help our coastal communities adapt to sea level changes and to increase storm impacts. Because those lands are smaller by acreage compared in many places compared to other ecosystems, they don't necessarily create a a big opportunity overall, but they can be really important on a per acre basis. And and some of our tidal ecosystems rival the old growth forests of the Pacific Northwest in terms of 
per acreage storage potential. So really, really important to be thinking about those co-benefits. Similarly, in our urban settings, uh, again, while the footprint might not be that big, uh, the co-benefits for health, air quality, and uh, reducing heat island effect. So I, I really encourage people to think about all of those co-benefits and not just to go for what's the biggest slice, but to, to think about a comprehensive program that can help us uh, achieve both our climate outcomes, but also improve equity, address climate resilience, and think about the, the other co-benefits that we can achieve. In, in other words, there are you know, benefits to be realized in, in all these cases above and beyond just the storage of carbon. And, you know, I think based on what I'm hearing you say, storing more carbon, you know, and getting some of these benefits aren't dissimilar. So in agriculture, you know, maximizing things like yields and whatnot, and thinking about carbon aren't, you know, aren't at odds with one another. That's very true. The overall per acreage productivity, and, and then also reduce costs from some of the practices that have climate benefits are, are really important to think about. There's improve, increased water holding capacity when you have more carbon in the soil. So there are just lots of benefits that go together. With that being said, it's important to recognize that there are some transition costs that producers need to think about and that we as a society need to recognize as we try and adopt practices that will be good in the long run from a climate perspective and financially for the producer, but may need those producers may need some help in order to be able to make the shifts that they need to make to adopt those new practices. That makes sense. So thinking, you know, like as a farmer might convert over to organics, there's value, you know, at, at the end of the tunnel, but for a number of years in there, they're not necessarily getting the yields they were used to. And, and so there's a financial impact to their operations for a period of time. And so similarly, it sounds like, you know, whether you're focusing on timber or focusing on agriculture, adopting these practices in the long run have value, but may need financial incentive to make that happen. Exactly. I'm, you know, wondering, given the vast array of different ecosystems, are there, are there certain attributes that make for increased carbon storage? In other words, you know, additional moisture or generally what kind of attributes do you want to have in an ecosystem to maximize carbon storage? Yeah, uh, certainly the amount of moisture, you know, the uh, climate that the ecosystem is in, in terms of how long a growing season uh, that ecosystem can be sequestering carbon. So it, it, those are some of the driving factors. Uh, the soils uh, will influence uh, productivity of, a, of an ecosystem. And so all of those are kind of the most important considerations in terms of thinking about ecosystems and their ability to sequester carbon. In other words, it might seem obvious for some, but it, that's why sort of the focus in many ways on places like the Amazon, where you have probably rich soils, lots of moisture, and kind of year-round grows at growing season. True. Well, given the potential of, of natural ecosystems to sequester carbon, and given the maturity of the science, you know, from your perspective, what are kind of the actions that are needed to really get us from where we are to kind of that, that ideal state where we've leverage these ecosystems to their fullest potential in terms of sequestering carbon? Are there, you know, policy actions that are needed, you know, education, et cetera? It's really all of the above. It's really important for us to think about 
what kinds of policies we adopt for how we use and manage lands. It's important to think about opportunities for uh, corporations that might want to go above and beyond what they can do in their own footprint to reduce their carbon footprint by investing in carbon markets. Financial institutions can think about how and what they're investing in to make sure that they're not investing in practices that result in deforestation, for example. So there are lots of different kinds of approaches that we can take to think about how to drive the scale of change that we have the potential to drive in order to increase sequestration in the land sector. So there's great potential in the U.S. The, the added potential beyond what the current role of the land sector, which is currently estimated to reduce our total emissions by about 12%. So beyond that baseline, we could increase sequestration equivalent to taking all of passenger vehicles off the roads. So oh, wow. it's a huge potential, but that comes with a huge need to change how we manage lands. And so as we think about that, we have to think about all the tools in our toolbox that are going to help land owners and managers invest in the kinds of change, the changes in management practices that will achieve those outcomes. And we're going to need to do that through uh, support and incentives to those land owners and managers, uh, as well as keeping some of our really critical um, policies like land use policies that make sure that we are having a, a really efficient footprint on the landscape in terms of our built environments. So it's important to be thinking about a diversity of policies as well as kind of mechanisms that we can use to change how we think about land uh, use and management in the, in the U.S. and in the world. So as we've discussed these different policy solutions, I, I think for some, myself probably included, it feels super complex and hard to maybe wrap your head around. But one of the things I think that you know can be beneficial is to think about what what can we as individuals do? And I'm wondering, you know, in the context of land-based carbon sinks, are there things that, that each of us can do to help contribute to, you know, maximizing, you know, their potential? I would flag two things. The first, get involved. It's really important for us as voters and citizens to pay attention to what our elected officials are proposing that we do around climate change, uh, including uh, how we think about use and manage our natural and working lands. So get involved. There are lots of sources of information that you can find locally. A number of communities are creating climate action plans. A number of states have them. Uh, there's good information nationally about what we can do to, to reduce our emissions and increase sequestration in the land sector. So get involved, get educated as much as you can, ask good questions. Sometimes you don't need to go advocate for an answer, but just ask really good questions of your elected officials so that they know it's important to you and they pay attention to it and, and help really find the solutions that are going to work best in your local area. And then the second area is just to be mindful of what uh, we all consume because we contribute to um, increased emissions the more we consume. The more you can reduce and then reuse and recycle materials, the better. One uh, thing that I don't think people realize is that we waste 40% of the food that's produced in the U.S. And that's we, the consumers. And the more wow. we can reduce that waste, 
the more mouths that we're going to be able to feed uh, over time. And we can eliminate poverty, increase equity, and also get ourselves in a good position to be able to feed a growing population across the planet. So that's something you can do in your kitchen. And right. um, it's a second really great thing to pay attention to. Perfect. I think those are both great options. So just want to say thank you for, for making your time to come and speak with us. I still have additional questions that I'd love to ask. Maybe I'll we'll have to have you come back for a follow-on episode. But yeah, thank you for coming in and sharing your expertise with us on such a, an important topic. We, we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. So do you feel like uh, an authority now that you've listened to Kathy? Of course I am. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm about as much of an authority as Tyrone is an expert driver in the movie Snatch. (laughs) Um, No, I I, I do feel there's a lot of complexity to this whole thing, but one of my major takeaways was that maintaining and not degrading any further these kind of natural carbon sinks is going to be huge because they're so big and, you know, the time it takes to damage them is a lot less than the time it takes to get them back. You know, to look at this in some numbers, if we look at kind of what we're outputting, total greenhouse gas emissions, he- human caused is 50 gigatons annually. And, and that's including methane and nitrous oxide and some of these other gases. Our carbon emissions are you know, 80% of what we're emitting. Uh, 85% of that is fossil fuels. And 15% is deforestation. So that's kind of what we're talking about here when we talk about affecting our our natural carbon sinks. Roughly half, this is an amazing number to me, that roughly half of the carbon emitted into the atmosphere is absorbed by nature. So that's a, you know, that's a huge, huge number. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, it's hard to even imagine it. And then the carbon sinks, uh, 60% of it is land-based. So like soil and plant foliage. And then, of course, 40% of carbon sink is in the ocean, too. And over time, if you look at historical carbon sink, it's massive what, what's put into the sediment, you know, in the lower part of the ocean. So what were your what were some of your takeaways? Yeah, similar to you, I, I didn't have a, a robust appreciation for kind of the scale of things. And, and I think the way you put it is, is right, which is, let's focus first on preserving what we have, right? We can't afford to have any more of these natural systems degrade. And then I think too, for me, it, it made me reflect a little bit on, you know, on the different products that we rely upon, you know, talking about kind of the food and the fiber side of things, Mm -hmm. you know, like peat, for instance, like those are small areas that are highly effective at capturing carbon. And right. I mean, for somebody like you, it's, it's probably time to to give up that scotch or, you know, (laughs) meter it out a little bit better. I have to do some research on that. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Luckily, I don't hit that stuff too hard anymore. No, in all seriousness, uh, I was was thinking back a little bit to our episode that we did on meat and thinking about the huge impact that producing meat has in terms of global emissions. I mean, you're talking on the order of 15%. Yeah. And then what we're talking about here in terms of natural carbon sinks, you could argue that cutting back on our meat consumption could really have a threefold benefit, right? You're cutting direct emissions associated with meat production. You're helping halt tropical deforestation that's occurring 
because of meat production, and you're freeing up land that was previously, you know, tropical rainforest that can be returned to its natural form and, you know, sequester a lot of additional carbon that way. Yeah. Yeah, you're not getting methane, you know, you're not getting the methane production either. No. So talking about this week and opportunities to to take action, you know, the the what can we do, I thought we would just, you know, steal from Kathy, given that she already talked about two great items in, in her interview. So we encourage everybody and start of the year is a good time to do that, to think about how can you cut your your food waste. You know, Kathy pointed out, you know, in the U.S. anyway, 40% of our food gets wasted. And, mm-hmm. and that's huge when we yeah. think about the amount of land that we're using to produce food and the energy intensity of food. And so the message is for, for me, I need to do a better job of not just taking the leftovers home, but, uh, mm-hmm. but eating them. Um, so encourage everybody to take a look at what you're bringing into your house in terms of food and, and how you can, how you can assure that, uh, more of that ends up in your stomach. Maybe not good for the post-holiday waistline, but, um, certainly helps on the climate side of things. <laughs> the second item we're going to put out there in line with what Kathy suggested this week is pick one of your senators. You can do both. If you're feeling ambitious, go to their website and to take a closer look at kind of their stance on climate change. What, you know, what bills they've advocated for, what kind of policies. And while you're there, uh, submit a comment, tell them, you know, how you feel about climate change that you're concerned and, and, encourage them to pass legislation that gets us to where we need to be in terms of, you know, a 50% cut by, by 2030 and net zero by 2050. You know, we'll put some talking points on our website to help you out with that. But yeah, take 10 minutes, go check out, get smarter on one of your senators and, uh, and send them a note on climate action. Cause I think it really is a numbers game with all this stuff. And, and the more they hear it, the more it, it helps get these important bills across the finish line. So before we wrap up today, want to uh, double down on Todd's request to help promo the podcast. Again, assuming you're here because you like it. So that's a wrap for today. Uh, thanks, as always, for tuning in. Come back next week for more climate solutions, reasons for hope, and ways each of us can make a difference. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast. Mm-hmm.